Okay, good morning, brothers, sisters. Uh, good to be back here again. I was out of the pulpit for the last five weeks, you know, so um, I'm honestly just a little nervous being back in here. Got to fix something right here. And <clears throat> preaching is like anything else where you don't do it for a while, you get rusty. So I'm feeling a little rusty this morning. And then uh, we're going to start a Christmas series. We're going to be talking about Christmas the next few weeks. My least favorite sermons in the world to preach are Christmas sermons. So those are my two disclaimers for this morning. The sermon's going to be horrible, but the title of it is, I'm just, I'm kind of kidding. You guys are a little stiff. Uh, but maybe it is. I am rusty. Christmas hope. And it's from Isaiah 9. Let's open up there. Isaiah chapter 9. A familiar Christmas passage. Open up to Isaiah 9. I'll be working from the New Living Translation this morning. Give you a second to get there. Is it warm in here? It feels warm to me. It's hot, huh? Austin, what's going on? Everyone's saying it's hot. You notice how one week here at reality, it's like freezing cold and then it's hot. Skiba, you don't know. You're always cold. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sorry. We got to get down to the word of God. Okay. See, I told you I'm rusty. Christmas help, Isaiah 9. Reading from the NLT, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord says, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful word before us this morning and the hope that springs forth from the pages. Truly, your word is living and active. We ask that you would give us ears to hear your word this morning, but also that you would, by your spirit, just do a work in our lives that would cause hope to spring up in us, a true joy in who Christ is and what's been brought to us and what is coming to us in Christ. That joy would form our lives and our thoughts and our feelings, sustain us in difficult days. So thank you for your word this morning. 
living, active, and there, wonderful, beautiful. Bring it alive to us, God. Please help me to teach and preach by grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas time, you know, Christmas in our culture, in our lives has become to be about so many things, right? There's so much going on at Christmas time. There's so much that sort of fills our hearts and minds. It easily becomes about the presents and the stuff for us. Can anybody relate? It becomes about the parties. It becomes about the shopping, the expense of it all, the busyness of the season. It becomes about all these different things. But originally, in the Bible, Christmas was about hope. Original intent of Christmas was hope. Not like, I hope I get that certain thing for Christmas. (laughs) Not that kind of hope. And not even that meaning of the word. We use hope popularly different than the Bible uses the word. We mean sort of like this vague optimism, just like I said, like, oh gosh, I really hope I get that, or I hope it works out, or I hope she likes me, or something like that. We have sort of this vague optimism based on things that we don't know or, uh, or are uncertain about. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. The way that the Bible uses the word hope is as an expression of sure expectation of something good that is coming our way from God because he said so. You see, it's different. It's not a vague optimism based on what is unknown. It is a certain, assured expectation of something good coming our way because God has said it is so. It's the way the Bible uses the phrase hope. What helps us think about biblical hope is Psalm 130. Look at this excerpt from Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord. And in his word, I put my hope. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. So notice that we're told to hope in the word of God and in God himself. Who he is and what he has said. His character and his quality and his promises and his prophecies. Who God is and what he has said is what we are able to place our hope in. And that's a, that's a component of our faith. Faith and hope are kind of paired together. Think about that famous passage from Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Our faith and hope and this idea of assurance, things that we don't yet see, their future, but God has promised them in his word and through his character is what we hope for. And the reason that hope is so important is because hope is, in the biblical sense, the opposite of despair. Hope is the opposite of despair. And what the Bible is endeavoring to do, what God is endeavoring to do, is to rescue us from despair by giving us hope. To rescue us from despair by giving us hope. Hope in what God has said and who God is becomes a sort of like anchor that holds us fast in the storms of life. Can anybody relate to the storms of life? Hope is like this anchor that holds us fast. That's the way it's spoken of in Hebrews. Look at this passage. So God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Someone say amen. Amen. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge 
can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. We who have fled to him for refuge have confidence, strong and trustworthy anchor in our hope in the Lord. Look what Psalm 146 says this should do in our lives. Joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Hope, biblical hope, is connected to joy in this life. Joy is a rare and precious commodity in this crazy world. True joy. And true joy is discovered in the hope of who the Lord is and what he has said. And in difficult days, that becomes this confident, grounding anchor that holds us secure. Look at this Paul, this Paul, sure, Pauline prayer, this prayer that Paul prayed. Say that three times fast. Look at this prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Rome. And I have been praying this for us this week. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look who our God is. Our God is the God of hope that he would fill us with joy and peace and believing so that we would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This hope is like a God thing, empowered by God, by his spirit. Here's why biblical hope is so beautiful. And here's why Christmas is so important. Because we live lives and we live in a world and we have experiences that can leave us with feelings of deep despair. Think about the craziness of our world. Think about the ups and downs of our own lives. Think about the depth of our own sin and failures. Think about the crazy stuff that happens to us, around us, in us. Life can sometimes leave us with a real sense of despair. This is why biblical hope and Christmas are so important. I had an experience this week along with my wife that made me think about this. Most of you here know our story, but some of you don't. About four years ago, our little daughter, Daisy Love Merrick, went to go be with Jesus. She died after almost four years of battling cancer. And the loss of a child is um, hard. And with that came some real, real dark times, some real despair, some really deep pits. And that's been part of our journey and struggle. Hope becomes so real in times like that. And so this week, we were called upon to sit with a couple from our church whose daughter was recently killed. This will be their first Christmas without their little girl. And so we met for coffee and we sit at this horrible table. This is a table you never want to be at. We sit at this table across from each other's two couples talking about the loss of our little girls. And the reality of despair is so near in that space of pain. And we wish we had words to say to one another. We wish there were an embrace that was strong enough to make it hurt less. But there's none of that. We found as we sat around that table crying and drinking coffee that all we have is hope. 
and who God is and in the promises God has made. It's all we have is hope. And we found that hope actually helps us make it through the day. Because of the promises God has made about new life, eternal life, and resurrection from the dead, and life in glory with Jesus. And because who God is, and he can't lie, and all of his words are true, we can get out of bed in the morning. We can face another Christmas without our little girl because Christmas means hope. God is faithful. God has done and God will do and God has promised certain things that are meant to sustain us. He never said this life would be easy or pretty. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And at that dark, dark table, we saw together little rays of hope. We thought about 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul speaks about hope in the same context, loved ones who have died. He says, and now dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. See, biblical hope actually changes things. It's truth. It's truth that becomes an anchor to our weary, often drifting souls. This truth forms us and informs us. It begins to change the way that we think and feel and so act. And so we're actually different in the face of the storms of this life because of this hope and who God is and the promises that he has made. Christian hope literally helps us make it through today. Christmas, as I said, was originally about hope. And we know this passage well, perhaps. And maybe hope leaps off the page as we read some of those verses. The latter couple of verses again. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. And that was a prophecy that was given to the nation of Israel about Jesus, their promised Messiah. Now, the prophecy was given 700 years before Jesus came. We often call this time of year right before Christmas Advent or Advent season, season, excuse me, seasoning. You could probably buy that at Trader Joe's. It's actually a great idea. Mine, I thought of it. Advent seasoning. Someone's Googling that right now. That's, That's good. Advent season. The word Advent means arrival or appearing, visit or coming. This was a promise, this, the passage that we read in Isaiah 9, about the arrival, the appearing, the visit, the coming of the promised Savior of Israel, Jesus. And it was a promise that was meant to give Israel at this time in their history hope because they found themselves in a space and a place of despair, as we often do. And they were in desperate need of hope. Israel was in despair. And, and, and in the context here, their despair had largely to do with their own sin, its ramifications, and their utter inability to make any of it better. Anybody relate to that? Anybody ever made a mess through sin? Raise your hand. 
Just like five of us, you bunch of liars. 500 liars in a room. Israel was making messes in their sin. And, and the effects of it were reverberating throughout their culture and their lives and their families. And they discovered in themselves a real inability to fix it, or to do anything about it. God was kind of pointing out to them their condition back in chapter one of Isaiah. We'll put it on the screen for you. Listen to what this says. Listen, oh heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner and a donkey recognizes its master's care, but Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They're evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why do you continue to invite punishment, he says to them? Must you rebel forever? Look at this description of them metaphorically. This is a state they were in because of their rebellion. Your head is injured and your heart is sick. You're battered from head to toe, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds without any soothing ointments or bandages. Look at this phrase. Your country lies in ruins. Your towns are burned. Foreigners plunder your fields before your eyes and destroy everything they see. Beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-to in a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. And they, they were in a really bad place in their rebellion. And they're running from and walking away from the Lord and their sin. And, and, and the reverberating effects of their sin were leaving them in this battered, bruised sort of condition. And so they did what humanity often does and maybe what we have been guilty of at certain times. They just try to kind of like go through some religious motions to try to maybe make it feel better. Maybe they could placate God somehow if they just kind of showed up at church and went through the motions and got the rituals done. Or what's sobering in Isaiah is that God sort of saw through their facade. They didn't want to change. They, didn't have, they weren't really addressing the sin issues. They just started going through these religious motions. And look what God says about it in chapter one. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices? Says the Lord. I'm sick of your burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they're all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. Festivals, They're a burden to me. I can't stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I'm not going to look. Though you offer many prayers, I'm not going to listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Told you I didn't like Christmas sermons. They'd fallen into this sort of cold, dead religion and God saw right through. The interesting thing is those were all things that God had asked them to do. But God wasn't after their external observation. God was after their hearts. 
and them as men and women and children whom God loved. And they were in rebellion to God and they were running from God and they were suffering, beaten and bruised and broken from the effects of their own sin. And God was calling them back to relationship and in love, not some empty ritual. And God just tells it like it is. Then he calls them to live differently. He's calling them to a whole different way of being. He says, wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. He's after their hearts. He's trying to call them back in love. I'm, I'm, I'm your, you're my people. You're wandering away. And he would warn them, listen, if you do this, you're going the way of judgment. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And God would judge them and they wouldn't repent and they wouldn't come back. And so in 722 BC, God caused the Assyrians to come and conquer Israel to decimate them. Later on again, in 586 BC, the Babylonians would come and drag them off into exile and God would use their enemies to chasten them, to discipline them. And Israel would find themselves through their own sin and the effects of it in very dark times. Wandering, lost, exiled, defeated, broken, bruised, heart sick. You know, just the perfect time to go back to the Lord. But you know, sin doesn't only have a breaking and grinding effect. Sin also has a blinding effect. And they were so blind, they went looking ridiculous places for relief. Look what it says in chapter eight. Someone may say to you, let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead with their whisperings and mutterings, they will tell us what to do. Stop right there. Do you see the insanity of that? Israel, God's people, saying, let's go like to the astrologer. Let's go to the, the tarot card reader. Let's go to the palm reader. Let's read the horoscope. What is this? But shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They'll look up to heaven and down at the earth, but wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. And they will be thrown out into darkness. These were dark days in Israel. There was utter despair amongst God's people. And it is into that darkness that the light of chapter 9 is shown. The very next verse after we read that is the first verse that we read in chapter 9 where God breaks into their despair, into their darkness and says in chapter 9 verse 1, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future. Here's hope language. When Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine upon them. You will enlarge the nation. Its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like the warriors dividing plunder because you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod. Notice what just happened. They themselves were making an enormous mess of their lives. 
And it was like a downward spiral of darkness and despair, so much so that they were going to dark places trying to find some sort of light. And here's where God steps in and God said, here's the deal. I myself will put an end to your darkness. I myself will step into the darkness in Jesus, the light of the world, and your darkness shall end. Where you have known despair, you will experience glory. God steps into the despair, into the darkness, and offers them glory, hope in the face of despair. And this this passage and its kind would come to form Israel. They would become a people of hope. It would inform the way that they lived and they thought about the world. It wouldn't only be the Assyrians. It wouldn't always be the, only be the Babylonians. Later, there'd be... There'd be wow. <laughs> that was straight Elmer Fudd or who was that? Elmer Fudd? <laughs> I couldn't do that again if I tried. <laughs> I can't it wouldn't only be the Assyrians and it wouldn't only be the Babylonians. Later on, it would be the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Romans. They would find themselves to be truly an oppressed, dominated people, brought on through the consequences of their own sin. And so whenever they surveyed the world around them and the weight of it and the depth of it and the pain of it and the brokenness and their own captivity, what did they have but hope? It would form the way that they thought about the world and they thought about their futures and their kids' futures and their grandchildren's futures. They would say, yes, these are dark and desperate days, but light is coming. It won't always be dark. We won't always experience this despair. Hope and glory are coming in the Messiah. And they would become a people of the Messiah who would have this hope that would sustain them. So you can imagine what it was like for them when they experienced that first Christmas, that's your cue, Randy. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding the flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. And they were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you'll recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. And all of their minds went back to Isaiah 9, 6. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is God doing for them what they could not do for themselves. They couldn't undo the effects of their sin. They couldn't navigate their way out of the mess or out of the storm. Can it save themselves? Can it deliver themselves? Can it overcome their enemies? Could not escape from the oppression. This is good news. This is God doing for them what they could not do for themselves. He would say to them at one point, at the end of chapter one, I'll just read it to you. He'd say, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though your sins are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. Hope. God would someday do for them what they could not do for themselves. 
Now, as Christians, we realize that this is what Christmas is about. It's about this hope. In Advent, these days leading up to Christmas, is about us identifying with, recognizing, somehow entering into the languishing despair of Israel as they waited for the Messiah. Recognizing, identifying with their inability to save themselves. And then celebrating the advent, the arrival, the coming, the visit of God's gift in Jesus Christ. But Christianity has two advents. Christianity has two great arrivals. Christmas is not the end. Christmas is a beginning. An advent... Christmas season is not merely about looking back, but it's about looking forward. Christmas is about more than what happened in Bethlehem. Christmas is about what will happen when Jesus comes again. And we can do more than just identify with Israel and their pain and despair. We also find ourselves in this age living with true longing. Can we relate to, at least metaphorically, that description of Israel and their sin? Running back to that, thank you. Where he said to them, your head is injured. Your heart is sick. You're battered from head to toe, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds without any soothing ointments or bandages. Sometimes our own sin leaves us feeling this way. Sometimes it's the sin of people that we love. Sometimes it's the effects of sin as they reverberate through our culture and our world, sickness, disease, death, perversion. And the world kind of looks like that. Now what we know as Christians is that the forgiveness of sins was brought to us at the first advent. Christ came, lived a perfect life because we couldn't died a horrific death on the cross so that we won it, rose from the dead again that we might have eternal life. The forgiveness of sins was brought to us at the first coming, the first advent. But we still, in this lifetime, experience some of the grinding and blinding effects of sin. And all those things that we see in our own lives and in the world, sickness, perversion, broken relationships, oppression, evil, death, this is part of our common daily experience. In many ways, we still feel like those who are in a land of deep darkness. So what's going on? If Jesus came, if the announcement of the angels was true, why do we still experience all this? Here's something we have to understand. The salvation that has been brought to us in Jesus exists in or unfolds in three tenses. Salvation that has been brought to us, given to us by God in Christ, exists or unfolds in three tenses. First, the past tense. We, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been fully saved from the penalty of sin. You put your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross in your place and rose from the dead to give you a new life. You have been fully saved from the penalty of sin. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. Removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. Though they were red like crimson, he has made us white as wool and white as snow. We have been fully forgiven our debt against God. Past tense, done. But there's a present reality to our salvation. 
we are being daily saved from the power of sin. We have been fully saved from the penalty of sin. We are being daily saved from the power of sin. You know what I mean when you say when I say the power of sin. Anybody here know temptation? Anybody know the effects of evil in and around us, in the world around us? Forces of evil. And in God's love and God's, by God's power through his spirit and his word, he's daily holding us and saving us and delivering us from the power of sin. Whether it's just temptation in here or wickedness out there, we're being daily held, sustained, and rescued by God in the face of the evil of this world. But here comes the really good news. There's a future tense as well we will be ultimately saved from the presence of sin and all of its effects throughout history and the world. There is coming a day. It's called Second Christmas. You've heard of Second Breakfast, The Hobbit? This is Second Christmas. There is coming a day when Jesus arrives, appears, comes once again. And then he will vanquish, do away with all sin, evil, and all its effects. Our little girls won't die anymore. There'll be no more disease, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more wickedness. His government and its peace will know no end. That day is coming. Second Christmas, you only thought there was one. The second advent of Jesus Christ. So Christmas is not just looking back. Christmas is also looking forward. There's a first advent. There's a second advent. First Christmas, second Christmas. We live in the tension in between. And it is tension. Because the kingdom has come. The kingdom came at the first advent. When Jesus came, the kingdom came with him. The kingdom is already here, but it is also not yet here in fullness. So we're living in this present tense of tension. So we identify really with Israel and their great hope. Messiah is coming again. And he'll deal with evil once and for all. That's why, you know, when Paul was writing about death and the resurrection and all these things in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, listen, if if our hope in Christ is in this life only, then we're to be pitied. There is so much more than this life. There's more to come greater promises yet to be fulfilled. So in difficult times, we can relate to the psalmist who said in Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Because let's be honest, as we said before, life is hard and life can leave us in places and times of despair. But that's when we look to the promises of God. And here's the cool thing. You know, when you, when you read the Old Testament and you read passages like this where both the first advent and the second advent, first Christmas, second Christmas, first coming, second Christmas, second coming, they're mentioned like in the same breath, in the same set of sentences. It can leave us wondering. When, when? Why is there this huge gap in between? Why are we experiencing this couple thousand year gap before the Lord comes again? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know this. As sure as he came one time, he is coming again. 
If there was a first advent, there's a second advent. If there was a first Christmas, there will be a second Christmas. And as sure as the promises of salvation and forgiveness and deliverance were given to us in that first coming, so sure his promises of renewing all things and wiping away every tear and vanquishing all evil will be fulfilled in that second coming. It's absolutely sure. Life can throw so much at us. We need to fill ourselves with these promises of God. Brothers and sisters, we're nearing the end of 2016. I will tell you once again, in the new year, you have to make a commitment to reading scripture. If you do anything in your life this year, you have to feast on the promises of God. You have to feast on the truth of the person of Christ as revealed to us in God's word. So much in this world that would make us despair. So many messages that would pull us away. So many things that would leave us feeling beaten and bruised and welted like Israel was. We need to feast on the truth of God's word so that we have this hope like an anchor. This confident hope. Paul said this very thing in Romans 15 when he said, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And I'll tell you, when I sat at that table, you never want to be at, my wife and I and that other couple. If the word of Christ hadn't been richly dwelling in our hearts, if we weren't familiar with and hadn't been feasting on and weren't by grace full of the truth and the promises of God, we never could have climbed from the pit of despair. Never could have seen our way out of that. We had to be rescued by God's truth. God's truth rescues us in this world. That is true hope. My favorite verse from the book of Isaiah, big book, 66 chapters, is this one, and this is where we'll end. This is second Christmas right here. Ready? Second Christmas. For God will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is Christmas glory. That is Christmas hope. It's been brought to us and it is coming to us. So dear brothers and sisters, hang on. Cling to Jesus. And when you lose your grip and you can't cling to him, the good news is that he clings to you. I pray that the God and the source of hope will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him and that you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.